You're listening to Vinyl Tap, inside the music industry with Michael Parisi. Hi, my name is Michael Parisi. I've been a part of the music industry for over 30 years. I've worked in all facets of the business, from promotions, marketing, A&R and artist development. I've also worked for and with major record labels. I've run my own labels and my own music publishing company, and I'm still an artist manager today. So take a seat in the room with me as I talk with some of the biggest movers, shakers and visionaries of the music industry. There'll be lots of stories, insights and intel that you won't hear anywhere else. So sit back, relax and welcome to Vinyl Tap. I was recently afforded the opportunity to do my podcast live in the soundbox at the front of the Art Centre in Melbourne as part of Melbourne's annual Always Live Festival. The loose subject matter was Melbourne's music scene, both in a historical and contemporary sense. The question was, who should I get to discuss this with me? When I think of Melbourne music, and particularly the independent music scene, there are two names that keep ringing in my head, Bruce Milne and Mary Mihalakos. Besides being one of the most humble human beings I've ever met, Bruce is a proper pioneer of the Australian music industry. His record label at GoGo has, and will always have, a place in Australian music history. You'll find his fingerprints over artists like Magic Dirt, Spiderbait, The Scientist, The Drones, and The Black Eyed Susans, to name but a few. He also co-owned the Tote Hotel for nearly a decade, and we all know about the Tote Hotel. And he currently owns Greville Records, one of the best vinyl stores in the country. Then there's Mary. Mary Mihalakos is a human tornado, a force of nature. She personifies everything about the Melbourne music scene, to a T. I reckon Mary has been to more live gigs than anyone in Melbourne. She has been a tireless champion of Australian music, both here and overseas. And if you want to question her commitment, then consider that she has recently just paid off her credit card for expenses she personally incurred in setting up the Aussie barbecue at South by Southwest many, many moons ago. So sit back for the next two hours and enjoy the next instalment of Vinyl Tap. Good morning. Welcome to Vinyl Tap, live from the Soundbox at the Art Centre. I'm not sure I've ever seen Mary in the morning before. Makes two of us. <laughs> welcome Bruce Milne and welcome Mary Mihalakos. Hi, Michael. Hi, the reason we're here this morning, when um, I got the opportunity to do this and um, the, the topic was the Melbourne music scene, the two people I thought of, really, in terms of, you know, that embody the Melbourne music, the Melbourne music scene are Bruce Milne for Go-Go Records and Mary Mihalakos. So, Bruce, or Go-Go, I mean, when I think of <laughs> Melbourne music scene, and in particular the independent music scene, I think of a Go-Go. It, had, it was such a seminal label. How did that all come about? Um, I, I think a go-go came about because, well, partly came about because I was a really bad musician, <laughs> so, but I was organised. So a bit like Mary, I just wanted to be involved and document. So I started doing fanzines and doing radio shows because that's when community radio was starting up, uh, organising gigs and putting out records was sort of a just an obvious the next step and it was basically all the young bands that I was hanging out with uh, was what I wanted to to do and uh, 
and that was the mid-70s, 77, yeah. 78. Um, and then it just sort of carried on from there. How difficult was it to start a label in the late 70s? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> we're just talking about it, right? <laughs> Pre-technology. Pre Pre-technology. Really hard when you had no idea what the hell you were doing. <laughs> uh, I remember going, well, how do I make records? I'll look up the phone book and see uh, where there's record pressing plants and ask them and uh, – and then it was like, oh, I'm going to need some money and I don't have any, so I'd better start working a bit. Uh, but I was really lucky because Keith Glass, who had Archie and Jughead's record shop with Dave Pepperell, had started a label called Missing Link and the, and the shop changed its name to Missing Link and he mentored me. Uh, he, well, I, I was on the dole at one stage, uh, and which was 50 bucks a week, and he said, I'll give you 50 bucks a week to come in here and, and put records in covers and uh, do whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm in heaven. <laughs> I love great. Missing Link. That was my that was my record store back yep. in the day. I'd go there and Keith would – that's where I discovered early U2 and, right. um, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen and even discovered punk. But in the cross the road, of course, there was Central Station if you wanted, you know, hip-hop, yep. yep. which was a fantastic yep. time. It what was about, a great time. Yeah, what about you, Mary? What, let's talk about your history. Where did your love of music come from? And I've, I've got to interject here. Mary's got to tell the story about her weekends when she was <laughs> She once told me and my jaw hit the ground. <laughs> let's start there then. Yeah. It's probably Should, makes more sense. Should we start sense. there and go? So probably I, I was the youngest of two older sisters. My older sister was 12 years old, older than me. So I think um, her first day at university was my first day at prep and um so she was really into music and like stuff like the sports and Led Zeppelin and all that sort of stuff so when so I, I sort of I guess I with my sisters watched a lot of Countdown and you know after school I'd come and watch Simon Townsend's Wonderworld and they'd always have a band on and that's probably where I first saw In Excess and I saw I sort of got I, but I know I, I didn't it, I don't know how, but I sort of gravitated towards the quirkier bands when I was a kid. So I remember watching Countdown and loving the Reels and loving the Johnnies and you know all, all you know all the stuff and the Cure, but not really you know my my little insider filter didn't like a lot of the commercial stuff. You know, I wasn't into Wham when I was a kid and all <laughs> the other kids that were into those bands. But so. What I started doing is watching Rock Arena, um, um, Barcia Bonkowski on TV. So I sort of got addicted to watching music television to the extent that uh, this is what I, I had shared this with Bruce. On Friday nights, I'd come home from school. I'd go, I'd have dinner. Oh, we're talking high school here, right? No, no, primary school. Primary school. Primary school. Oh, my God, it goes <laughs> way back. So I, I'm, talking, I'm talking like I'm, I was probably about 10 or 11, maybe 9, 10. I was probably in grade Four, grade five, and I would come home from school and I'd watch Wonderworld, whatever, then rock, W-R-O-K, rock, whatever, <laughs> yep. then go to bed at about 5.36. When the news came on, I'd go to bed and then I'd wake up again at about, you know, 10.30 and watch um, um, Lee Simon's TV show. Night and then moves. Night Moves. Mm. And then I'd watch um, John Torr's music video that then became Rage. And then I'd go to bed again at about 6 a.m. and wake up at 9 a.m. again to watch Sounds, 
with Donnie, Donnie Sutherland, Sutherland and yes. then and then um and then I'd w- watch watch um you know then the rerun of of Rock Arena or something and then I'd go back to bed at two and wake up at five for Countdown again and that was my weekend and it was like it was I, I didn't miss a single music video show and when when VCRs um my my family bought a VCR around that time I think you know whatever they first came out um I would start taping them and at home from that period of my life from about sort of you know nine to about. 15 I have I have catalog I have about 120 VHS cassettes and and it's catalogued and cross cataloged all the music videos this is way before YouTube you know now now it's obsolete but still it's 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 there as a um as, as I guess as, as as a what is it evidence of, of how obsessive I was at a very young age about music oh. so I feel like I never had a choice about these things I was just so <laughs> <laughs> you know, before I, never I was had a doing, friend. I never, I never had a friend either, and I was doing. And I got involved in Triple R on a, when I was in year eight because I went. I did a, a, a radio. I did a um, a project about transmitters, and I rang up all the radio stations, and Triple R said, "Come in," and so. I went in and I'd never left. In fact, I was there last night at Triple R and I saw Bruce. So that's how I got started. You know, before I knew it, I was going into um, Triple R twice a week after school um, from about year nine to, to year 12 and and um, and compiling the gig guide for Triple R. Yeah. We'll talk about the gig guide in, in a, a second. <laughs> talk about tra- talk about this train spotting and there's Mary Milakos <laughs> off the scale. And Bruce, when you were growing up, what was the Melbourne music scene like? What what got you into music? Was there anything culturally that happened that 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 you know started your desire for for music, the, or your Queensland music? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, certainly, one thing that sticks out in my mind is when I was in grade three. Do we still say grade three? Yeah, when I was about yeah, grade three. What, not nine, eight. Yeah. Um, the Beatles hit, so we're talking '64 or something like that, and it was. It's hard to describe what a a phenomenon it, that the Beatles was, but <clears throat> it got to the stage where our teacher was obsessed with the, our male teacher was obsessed with the Beatles. So at lunchtime, in grade three, you had a choice: you could go out for lunch. Or you could go out for lunch for 15 minutes and come back in and spend the next 45 minutes. And in that 15 minutes, the teacher would have written the words to a Beatles song on the blackboard and have a record player at the front of the room with the single and we'd spend the next 45 minutes singing that song over and over and over. And that's what I did for most of, I think it was 1964, was sing Beatles songs. Wow. And that's when, that, when they were here in that, in that period too, weren't but, they? And they came to Melbourne, although I was too young to You're really young. know about that. But... Uh, yeah, I mean that was uh, that certainly set me off, and uh, uh, I, I don't know what else happened after that. I just I couldn't get enough of music, and uh, yeah. What was your first ever show that you went to? That um, well, I was really lucky because when I was growing up, the live venues weren't based around alcohol sales, mm. so all the gigs were at universities, town halls, surf life saving clubs. Uh, so I could go to gigs from a very early age. In 1972, I would have been like 14 or 15, I'm not sure, um, a friend said, oh, you've got to come to this place called the Muchmore Ballroom on Cathedral Hall and on the start of Brunswick Street. And he took me early 72 and I, it would have been a spectrum gig, I suspect. Right. But I walk into this place and it's a bit like you read stories about kids who go to the circus. I walked into this room and that had bad um, 
hippie acrobats and bad hippie mimes and bad hippie magicians and it had food stalls sell, selling this new type of food called vegetarian food and, and underground, you know, <laughs> falafels and things like this, zucchinis. I've never seen one before. Uh, and, you know, underground comics and and these bands playing and I was just that from that moment on I was totally hooked. Totally hooked. I just that's what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. Do you remember your first gig, Mary? Um Ever. Ever. Yeah. Um when I was eleven I went to see In Excess at um Festival Hall. But probably um when probably my you know, I used to go to the Teddy Bears picnic with my mum here at the um, Sydney <laughs> My Music Ball and I remember seeing what some was that? Hmm? What was the Teddy Bears picnic? Yeah, yeah. I was like it was something targeted at kids, but it was a, it was definitely a live concert with Humphrey B. Bear. Oh yeah, and you know, and and <laughs> what and, a performer! But, but hang on, if someone like um, Peter Couples or someone like that played, you know, or some one of those, one of those, or Ray Burgess or one of those, you know. I remember seeing gigs there a bit, but um, it was it was in excess, and yeah, at Festival Hall. Was what what the was yours? Yeah. My first proper show ever, ever was Devo. Wow, at, at Festival, Festival Hall. Hall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I was 14, 15. It was my first proper show. I come from a, an Italian family, so going out was like a chore for, for our parents. So um, we convinced our, our dad, me and my brother, to take us to, to Devo. And he waited in the car while we watched the show, <laughs> of course, like good Italian parents do. Um, but I remember going, what? It, it was just out of this world. Yep. My first ever band, my yep. first ever band show. So it was, it was crazy. Can relate to. Sorry, Bruce. Um, no, no. no, I was going to say. Can relate because you know, no, no, no. Because you know, I, I come from a Greek family, but you know, but I think my parents knew how obsessed I was. I was also a real nerdy kid. So like they, my mum used to say, "I trust you. I don't trust the rest of the world." That's what and, they all say. And and so, but I still got my way because there was no way to stop me. But by that time, my sisters, well, my older sister was driving, so. I, you know, there was one I was always going to get to go wherever I needed to go, whether it was my older sister, my my dad or my mum. Someone was going to drive me to the gigs. And I was, I was 14, 13, going to gigs at the old Greek theatre because we used to go and watch Greek movies there as a family. So they knew the venue. So yeah. I didn't actually have much resistance <laughs> from my parents, you know. They didn't know I was going to go see, you know. Punk bands. I was seeing Mud Honey there when I was, you know, sixteen, or or, or Cosmic Psychos, or whoever, or Hard Ons. Even I remember that, seeing Hard Ons. You know, but Hard Ons. Rollins yeah. Band. Yeah. I mean, we could reel off. I mean, my parents knew the venue, so they were like, "Sure, here you are. We'll take you to there." And the, and the Sarah Sands Hotel in Brunswick. I remember, which you was know, a golf venue for a, for was, a long time, wasn't it? Yeah, and I started working there when I was seventeen. But we used to go to family functions there because um, it was a um, like a wedding reception place. So once the Sarah Sands was. The reading reception place. Yeah, yeah, oh. or the Greek functions. I yeah, don't right. think it wasn't. Yeah, so we might because these venues were known to my parents. I was I didn't have any problems getting them to take me there and pick me up because they <laughs> knew them. It was I, I couldn't believe the way I, I was so lucky that these venues that were you know used as Greek function places were, were became rock and roll venues and it and it made it easy so accessible for me via my parents. You know. So that's why you're booking the Brunswick Ballroom now. Yeah, this well, makes a lot of sense. The Brunswick Ballroom. <laughs> um, this is my mother um, came to Australia in 1958. Oh wow, she was. She was 16 years old and the Greek family, the Apostolakos family, who still own it now, were the, owned it then. But it was a sewing room. So my mother's first ever 
um, job was actually sewing. doing sewing mm. upstairs in the uh, that room that is now the Brunswick Ballroom. It's crazy. It's insane. <laughs> it's the connection. So you know, she she comes to well, yeah, she she's come to see. Greek gigs there too um, that I've booked. So yeah. it's, 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 I've just been fortunate in that, in that way that um, the Greeks have, um, the Greek landlords have, um, you know, relinquished their, their spaces to, you know, For the rock, rock and, and roll. roll scene. Yeah, it was been fantastic. <laughs> well, this segues nicely into, into our, our favourite venues in Melbourne. You know, yep. I, don't, I don't mind what era you want to talk about, but what are your, let's call two or three of your favourite venues, Bruce? Well, I could, I could piss in Mary's pocket and say, I, Something like Brunswick Ballroom works for me. A, a venue that is set up by music fans and run well, and as I'm now in my mid sixties, has some has some seating, works really well for me. I, I can't believe how important the Continental was on oh, Greville yes. Street and mm. Paran. That I got to see. I mean, Towns Van Zant and Jonathan Richmond and the. The list of people that played there, of bl- wonderful old blues musicians and uh, in a small venue run by complete music nuts uh, and, I mean, it, it used to be like I'd get six people together, we get a table, mm. you get a meal, you That's pay right, $60 you a and you'd be sitting five feet away from international artists that Absolutely. I just loved uh, with a passion and a waiter would come around and fill your glass. Uh, was that the era where which it was run by Draw Erez? Yeah. Is that right? Oh, was it did ID's. IDs. IDs. And yeah. then yeah. It was the Marios took it over. Took it over, that's right. Yeah. The Marios yeah. who run Marios Cafe. Yeah. That's um, right, the Continental. But, was... you know, Bernard Gelbley was, was uh, right. there and, yeah. and Charmin yeah. and just it's it was wonderful. was a great, great venue. Yeah. And, and the same venue that, I mean. Maz I, was there. Yeah, I concur. I think that that was one of the greatest venues. Also, the staff there were pretty much the same staff from the start to the end. So you know that they looked after their staff because it was the same team the whole way through. And I think that's great, that familiarity. You always get greeted there. I remember going to the to Conti a lot and um, and I think because I worked at, in Richmond at Beat and then so, you know, it didn't seem so far away these days. You know, going to Paran seems <laughs> quite, quite, quite far. But um, so, but, but it was such an, a beautiful space to go to and there weren't that many civilised, you know, that was such so civilised compared to the other venues that you'd go to like, you know, the mosh pits around, especially around that time when, you know, the, ni- the 90s when there were, um, you know, the, there, there was crowd surfing and all that sort of stuff, you know. There was mosh pits and grunge era and, you know, venues like the GB and, you know, that and the and the um, Punters Club. But I, I you know, I, I, yeah, I loved I loved the Punters Club. I loved the Empress. Um, yeah, the Empress was a great yeah. gig. I, I mean, I've also got to say that I, I love the Corner Hotel. Just it's, it's a very well-run venue. It's a decent size and they just nail it. Year after year, um, I mean, we're so lucky that we have those sorts of and still have know, them too. Yeah, we we don't have anything like the Conti, do we? Quite like the Conti. Yeah, you, you've always got things that are jazz you, clubs and you know people are going. Oh, I'm going to set up a venue like the Conti. Yeah. It's, so it's uh, you, you'll never have that sort of range of international artists coming out and playing for people paying thirty dollars to see. Yeah. You know, just but we we'll, we were sport by choice, weren't we? Yeah. Like, Back yeah. then, and we still are to an extent now, aren't we? I, yeah. I mean, I you know. and 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 must it'd be great to see more venues pop up that are seated because I, as someone who is currently booking a venue, it's the 
older audiences that have money and loved music their whole lives. Like that, it hasn't been sort of, you know, they have, you know, the younger generations they have other interests like you know, online things and you know, gaming and all that sort of stuff. But that that you know, over 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 sort of you know, even even a bit of Generation X, you know, they are real music lovers who really support the scene and buy tickets. So, you know, they 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 say I I have um better um you know selling shows with the older demographic, mm. whereas the younger ones it's a bit hit hit and miss a lot of the time. And younger people, obviously, you know, it's it's a bit, the cost of living is you know it's so expensive to. To go out Very now. true. And yeah. right now, nostalgia is king, I think. You know, it's evidenced by when you speak to um, record labels, what's selling right now in, in truckloads is catalogue. Yep. Or streaming right now, I should say. I always yep. use that word selling, but streaming is catalogue. Yep. And it's because the older you know, demographic have discovered streaming and they have got disposable income to go to shows. Yep. So that's why you're getting an influx of, I, you know. I remember when the Rolling Stones came to Melbourne in 74, the Kuyong show? Kuyong. Mm. And all my friends were going and they were like, aren't you coming? And I didn't have a lot of money. And I was like, no, it doesn't make sense. It costs $6 a ticket. <laughs> but for $6, $6.50, I think the ticket was, for $6 I can buy their album and I can keep playing that over and over. And now, you know, these sort of bands come out and people are going, aren't you going? And I'm like, no, no it's the cheapest tickets are $400. <laughs> and there's $1,500 tickets. Let's talk about our favourite shows. From, from years gone by, if you had to, like, choose two or three, what sticks out for you where you knew that was, oh, God, that was a life-changing moment for yourself or both you, both you? Wow, you didn't give that on the uh, list of uh, I, questions. I, I didn't, did ask. I? I'm just <laughs> there's sure there's, like, I, there's three pivotal shows in your life where you just went, wow, well, I'm never going to see that again. I, mean, I remember um, seeing – the first time I saw Red Cross – um, was quite a euphoric experience. And where was and that, Mary? Just it was actually at Festival hate Hall. Hate to say. I hate to say it, but it was supporting the Hudagurus at, um, at Festival Hall, and um, that 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 thing, I, I you know, just inc- incredible um, joy that that band gave me, um, and you know, a band I, I truly, truly, truly love. Um, yeah, that was that was incredible um, to see a band like Red Cross. But you know, I'd like to, I'd love to um, come up with a, a local band. So you know, Bruce. Yeah, I'm, I'm local bands. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think. I I remember <laughs> there was a uh, I think it might have been a Hoodoo Gurus gig at the Prince of Wales where uh, the New Christ was supporting when they'd first started, and it was a crowded gig. And I just pushed to the front, and I, there was guys against the barrier. And I just said, "Sorry, I, I'm. You can have the spot when the gurus come on. I'm going to be against the barrier because they." Uh, uh, and just having this time in my life watching the the, the the new Christ, but having pushed people out of the way and said, to get I, to. I, you, you, "I'll give you back your spot," <laughs> but I am standing here now because I want to see this band more than you do. <laughs> the new Christ is, of course, Rob Younger's. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was just, it's just an amazing band when, they, especially those early gigs, that just did so intense. And I saw all the Birdman gigs. Right. Um, actually, one gig that was life changing was when the Saints first came to Melbourne, and they, I think, their first gig was at the. Bebop and Lubar, which was on the start of uh, Barclay Street in St Kilda. And my memory of it, and I've talked to Ed Cooper about it, his memory is different, but my memory is they came on and Chris was drunk and he had a half a bottle of whiskey and I suspect there'd been more before that. And he was sort of mumbling. They started playing songs and Ed's guitar and amp kept 
screwing up, so he was basically kicking his amp to get it to work. Um, And then about 20 minutes into the gig, Chris collapsed. My memory is that Ivor, the drummer, and Ed came and picked Chris up and were carrying him off stage. Chris sort of regained consciousness and was trying to punch them in the face (laughs) and they left the stage and there there was only like 100 people in a big venue and we all just looked at each other and went, have we just seen the worst gig of our lives or the best, or the best gig, gig of, of our, our lives? <laughs> Another quiet night for Chris Bailey, I guess. I Another band that I mm. always love seeing live and I saw them, first time I saw them was actually at the Metro when they supported the Jesus and Mary chain. I'd snuck in underage. I was probably 15 or 16 and it was the Jesus and Mary chain. I mean, not Jesus, I mean, it was Died Pretty. Died Pretty were this an incredible band and every time... You know, um, you know, it's, you know, I think about Ron quite often, um, but you know, he he recently passed. But every show, I pretty much, I reckon, every show I saw of Died Pity was incredible, um, so moving, and you know, he he was just this incredible, inc- sonically everything about that that band, all their their music just gets under your skin. I just, I think he's a very underrated, and um, you know, like. Yeah, I, th- I think Died Pretty, one of the most incredible live bands I've uh, ever saw. Yeah, I agree. I remember seeing Died Pretty at the corner in the Frank Brunetti era yep. and a uh, young, fresh-faced kid from, you know, Reservoir, Melbourne, and it was craziness. It yep. was dangerous. Yep. You know, when you say well, you know, dangerous bands, you know, through through the eras, but Die Pretty were dangerous. You didn't know what was going to happen next with Ronnie. And that night they played an 18-minute version of Mirror Blues. Wow! It just kept going and going, and you didn't. And you were all in the trance yep. by the end of the end of the song. Yep. But that show will always go down in my mind as one of the best from, I've seen from a local act. Yeah, I have so much love for Died Pretty, and yeah. and the weirdest tonight, like tonight, um, which is the first of December at the Brunswick Ballroom, we've got the Victims playing with who's Dave Faulkner, who's one of Ron's best friends. But Ron's 25-year-old son is in the first. Oh, an wow. opening band, and the weirdest thing, not weird, but um, I met um, Zeb's mum, Kylie, at the front of Died Pretty gigs when I was 16, and she was my Died Pretty buddy for years and years and years to come, and it was just, it's, 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 and I don't, you know, such a um, special, you know, such a special band that, you know, um, have really sort of just been there, but I don't. I probably don't talk about them as much because they're not a Melbourne band. That's right. But yeah. They, you know, they're a really special band to me, and you know, it's nice to. I'm glad we got to talk about how fantastic Died Pretty are. There is. I mean, it's the as as someone who's put out records and Michael and you, yep. we're all in, you always want trying to capture something that you That's sort right. of can't. And I mean, if you saw a great Died Pretty gig. Oh, Had you know, captured, yeah. And, it's, it was off, off the And scale. their records didn't do them justice either. No. Because, you know, and yet they're great records. They were great well, records. Well, the first record I ever bought from Orgogo was actually from um, Bruce. From um, It was a Died Pretty record and it was when you were in Little Collins Street. Oh, wow. In that, yep. you know. Yep. It was a diff- it was it wasn't one of those how long were you in little Collins? it was like an arcade or about something about a year and a half or yeah, two years yeah, from that shop well speaking of sydney bands this segues nicely if you had to choose one melbourne band that sums up this city for you who is that band and why we're what? giving props to sydney bands but we've got to give some props to melbourne <laughs> oh, we do. come on well i mean there's all the obvious things i mean you you, you know Nick Cave in the birthday party, you, uh, um, you know, Paul Kelly, who might be from Adelaide, but I think we can claim we can him. Claim him. Um, Courtney with that sort of great dry sense of humour that somehow it seems to me like... like Quintessential Melbourne. Melbourne. Um, but uh, 
I've got one. Yeah. Spencer P. Jones and the Last Gasp because they had, even though he was, they were living in, you know, in, in, um, he, he was, he did sort of base himself in yep. Melbourne for most of Where his career. Where was Spencer from originally? He's from New, New Zealand. Zealand. Is that right? Yeah. Mm. And he moved to Sydney for a few years, but um, they were just a great band that played, a you know, nine-piece band. They had members of, you know, like who, who it was Dan Luscombe was in the band and they had... Um, um, you know, just just an incredible big sound. Like he had such a vision, and they played a lot at the Conti. They played a lot at the Punters Club, but they were like this band that I think I I'd, I'd never missed a show of theirs. I loved that band so much, as well as um. But this is going way back. These are like you know I loved the Hollow Men who Bruce put out on or Go Go. Oh, to. Yeah, I remember them. Yeah, yeah. And let's talk about Melbourne. Speaking of Sydney. When I was growing up, there was definitely a rivalry between Melbourne and Sydney yep. in terms of not just the bands and the venues, but just a general feeling that, oh, we're better than them. <laughs> I used to feel that all the time, you know. And you go to Sydney and they go, we're better than you. And is there a rivalry between Melbourne and Sydney when it comes to live music and, and artists? And regardless, what is the difference between Melbourne and Sydney, do you think, in terms of our music scenes? based on experience, and we've had a lot of experience here. Well, I think Sydney had such an incredible music scene in the 60s and 70s mm. and 80s, uh, and then something happened in Sydney that r really ruined the music scene. And, and I've tried to analyse, I mean, sometimes that's to do with government legislation, sometimes yes. it's to do with, I mean, we're probably lucky that, um, you can edit this bit out, sure. but we... We, we have a casino, which is basically the only pokies place in Melbourne or the, the main one, and all the idiots can go there and it left the rest of the city for in, – and, in fact, it, it meant that um, uh, retail spaces and places like that the, got cheaper in the, in the 90s. So That's that, right. Yeah. Um, you could open music venues in the middle of Melbourne, um, whereas Sydney it just – the, the pokies took the over yeah, all did. of those they hotels did. and – it was just horrible. Even when you went to the what, – what's the one on um, Parramatta Road? The Annandale. The Annandale. Yeah. You had to walk through a bunch of poking right. machines to go and see the band you wanted to see. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, just uh, – I, I think some of the other things that um, Me Melbourne's got going for it is I think our weather works in our favour. We're the only capital city in the country where for six months of the year you're indoors. Mm. And I think that's why Melbourne has a – great, you know, whether you're into theatre or restaurants or whatever or music, um, you're, you're used to doing things indoors, whereas in my mind everyone else is uh, rollerblading around in Lycra uh, whilst we're, <laughs> whilst we're uh, rugging up in grey. On, on Bondi Beach. Yeah. <laughs> I remember living in Sydney and what I found interesting about Sydney is that people would stay in their areas. Yeah. In Melbourne, we'll travel to see a show. When I was living, you know, as a kid in Reservoir, I'd go to St Kilda to see my favourite band. I'd go anywhere to see my favourite band. In Sydney, I found that people would stay, if you're from Bondi, you stayed in Bondi. Yep. If you're from North Sydney, you stayed in North Sydney. And so it was somewhat fractured. But I'll never forget the impact of pokies in New South Wales and watching, you know, towards the end of my, my stay there in Sydney, watching the venues just crumble one after the other. Yep. And there was nowhere left to play. Yeah. There really, literally wasn't. We've been lucky, haven't we, yep. that, that pokies haven't had the same impact. Yeah. I used to go to Sydney when I was between about the ages of 18 to about 22 mm. um, a, a lot. I would go every 
six, five to six weeks to see bands there. And then all those, most of those musicians that I would go to see in Sydney ended up moving to Melbourne. That's um, right. A bit yeah. after that, so it was funny, you know, from bands like The Welcome Mat and You Am I and, you know, even Died Pretty, everyone moved here. And, um, and a lot of the venues they had, um, you know, closed. They were challenged by residents and noise complaints and, and you know, the gigs always, you know, they had, great shops like um, Half a Cow and Waterfront and there was there seemed like a vibrant scene in the 90s and then the then you'd go up and then slowly, slowly the gigs I'd go up for were the small gigs. I'd only end up going to Sydney for the bigger events, you know, um, as, 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 you know, Melbourne Melbourne had a had a, a much more happening scene so there was no, everyone was coming to Melbourne anyway so there was no point going up to Sydney but, yeah, I think, I think Sydney was great, you know, and when I started going, you know, to, when I was old enough to travel on my own and drive and fly and stuff, it was it mm. was pretty cool. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's now coming back again. Yeah, um, I think so too. And that's fantastic. I mean, it, because we need to have a touring circuit. You need to, have, uh, you know, bands from overseas would. There was a stage where you know, remember that first White Stripes tour? Did yeah. they actually play a gig in Sydney? No, no, it was all it was all. Um, it was all Melbourne shows yeah. and, and seven shows in Melbourne and no right. gigs in Sydney. That's well, insane. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't. I mean, there aren't as many venues to play in Sydney yet, and like Melbourne's got like I'm I'm booking a tour now for a band from um, actually Greece, but um, in March, and and I can we're not going to go to Sydney until the next time they come here because there's about you know ten venues that I can get them gigs at for free with in okay Melbourne. guarantees. Yeah, mm. whereas if they go to Sydney. They're gonna um, lose money, and you know I know Sydney's getting better. Like I, know, I actually went to South by Southwest Sydney that was on in October, and you know I, I know that there's good things happening. There's you know people care about music there, but it just seems to be um, brands and a lot of industry. But there's you know like the people who like people. There's not many one anyone like Bruce and myself equivalent up in Sydney who do things for the love of it. Like. That many that I know of, maybe there are, but I haven't met them. Yet. Well, they can't be because they they were killed off yes, they 20, twenty and thirty yeah. years ago, and that, you need a whole ecosystem to yeah. come right. along again and and to build up, and that'll take a generation. I agree. And if there's anywhere in Sydney right now that there's actually doing something interesting, believe it or not, it's Western Sydney. Yep. There's little a burgeoning um, urban hip hop scene. Yep. Uh, and there's also a rock and roll scene. You know, when you speak to Johan from IOU, he'll tell you that there's there's artists out there who, who can't be bothered coming into Sydney proper. Yep. So Western Sydney's one to watch too. Yep. Now, in terms of international, and you guys are well travelled. Where does Melbourne sit in the greater scheme of things compared to other other great music cities like New York, like London? Oh, I think I, I think I've always believed that Melbourne was one of the great music cities. Um, the great, the good thing is that in well, since I've stopped putting out records, uh, it sort of happened that Melbourne artists and it's not just I, I come from a rock and roll background, mm. but whether it's it's hip hop or whether it's electronica or whether it's rock and roll, there uh, whether it's indigenous music, there uh, which are all overlap. Melbourne artists are succeeding all around the world. So now when I travel and I say I'm from Melbourne and the, First, people don't say to me, oh, wow, that's the great sporting capital of the world. Yeah, they go, right. oh, my God, even you're though, from even Melbourne. Even though it probably arguably yeah. is. Yeah. But they're like, you're, you're, that's the music city. Mm, and it is. it's like, yep, yeah, it is. It's, yeah. uh, and it doesn't matter whether they're fans of uh, 
Amel and the Sniffers or, or, or you know. Whoever, yeah. Even artists I've never even heard of. Sure. Uh, Melbourne artists are succeeding um, around the world and uh, and I feel so happy that I've, that I've been part of that. Uh, you have. You know. <laughs> what about Ethan, you, Mary? Yeah, um, well, yeah, I think I've travelled a lot. I haven't travelled that much in recent years as much as I used to because I used to go up to South by Southwest and Great Escape when I was doing the Aussie barbecue. But now, um, you know, I, I still I've got, think... I've got to interject there. I mean, you, you've got to understand, Mary would go over to South by Southwest, put on a barbecue... I want to a, talk about that yeah. in a second, yeah. <laughs> but, but I, I will say that, um, you know, but, but, but a band like King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, who are huge overseas, when I talk to them, they even say there's no city like Melbourne. Mm. You know, when they put on events and things like that, they, you know, even they're saying, and, and they come from, you know, they're, they're a hugely successful band around the world, but, you know, they, they're telling me that, you know, there's nothing like Melbourne. So, you know, from their perspective, which is, uh, you know, tw- they're 20 years younger than me, that, that I love hearing um, stuff like that, that, you know, and, and sometimes I've, as much as I love music and I've travelled and I love New York and all those cities, I've never actually wanted to live anywhere else because mm. I really, really love Melbourne and the scene here. And, um, yeah, we've, we, and we get so much, so many, every act tours through here as well. So, yeah. One thing I, um, when I was reading through your bio, Mary, one thing I forgot about you was that you did start the Aussie Barbecue, didn't you? Yes. South by Southwest yes. Aussie Barbecue. Because a lot of people probably think it was created by Sounds Australia who currently run it. But you did start that, didn't you? Yes, I did. So I started going to music conferences. Um, it's also because um, when I, the first time I went overseas in 94, I went to NMS, I went to, which is New York Music Seminar in New York, and I went to CMJ. Um, that which, was happening. Which is what, College in, Music? College Music Journal in, right. um, in, in, um, in New York as well. And and so I, then, then I found out about, you know, South by Southwest. Which and, is in Austin, Texas. Yep. And, and it's a small town. Um, at the time it was. It's, it's huge now. But um, so in the late 90s I started going to South by Southwest and I noticed um, when I started going semi-regularly that oh, – I was going every year – that the New Zealanders had a bigger presence than the Australian contingent and there were bands playing. I remember being there when, um, you know, Powderfinger played and Something for Kate played and and um, not maybe not – well, maybe um, – you know, um, Snout and, and they played to no one and probably played in front of – 20 people and then probably spent thousands over you know so twenty thousand yeah. dollars to go and and then I thought well maybe and at that time I think I was hanging out with um Sophie Miles from Mistletone and she, she we were going to um house part or you know day parties at South by Southwest and so, and I was seeing great bands during the day at you know on porches and things and I went oh I'm just going to Maybe I'll set up my own gig. And um, so the next year I just um, – I, I rang up – I think I rang up or um, emos and emailed them. I think there was – Which know, is a venue. A venue, yeah. Emos yeah. On, on the corner of Red River and, and, and 6th Street. And um, and I said, can I have the cup? Can I have a – can I book a gig and during the day? And they weren't having too many day parties at the time. They said, sure. And they gave me a spot. So it was right in the middle of the, the busiest strip during South mm. by Southwest. So I – Put, I had a 400, you know, 600 capacity room um, outside car park, and we. I I just went. I'll make it the Aussie barbecue because there's usually free booze and food, and you know somehow I got Austrade to help me source 
barbecue stuff and yeah and we had the first Aussie barbecue I put you know on my credit card it cost me about five thousand dollars um <laughs> and, and I had 20 bands I had no I had about five you know 15 bands I don't know a lot of bands and the bands that um, played my barbecue with the drones, um, Git, you know, uh, there's a whole lot of bands. And um, and all those bands, speaking to them after South by Southwest, said that they actually, anything that came out of their South by Southwest was because of the Aussie barbecue because we, they, you know, people actually came and they weren't running to 20 gigs in, in you know, a whole night. They just came and stayed at our, our Aussie barbecue. And I think... Um, um, Kevin Morris from Black Flag, um, Keith Morris, Kevin, Keith Morris, not, Keith, um, Keith Morris, Morris um, sorry, Keith Morris saw um, um, the drones and and then booked them to, to play with Mud Honey and that suddenly they've got this international career that started at the Aussie Barbecue and I was getting a lot of stories like that back. So, yeah, the second and third year I was able to tell tell people the success stories that came out of the first one, the showcase and I started getting more government government support. And after about 10 years of doing the Aussie barbecue, um, the Sounds Australia took it over. But um, so, yeah, I, I, I had to, I just paid off my credit card um, <laughs> two months ago completely. I just finally paid off, you know, 10 years, 12 wow. years of Aussie barbecues. I, I, you know, finally paid them off because it got, you know, it was it was such a big debt, yeah. <laughs> so, That's fantastic. Speaking of South by, obviously happened in Sydney this year. I was... I was hoping that we could do something similar here because I think we've got the right, you know, you know um, climate and temperament for, for a, a, a venture of that nature. Can we do something like that in the future, Mary? Can Melbourne host a music-based festival program a la South by Southwest? Absolutely. We've got heaps of venues. Even, I mean, I, I think um, Brunswick's got probably a lot of more bigger spaces than a lot of than, than Fitzroy and Collingwood and it's quite compact like in the block that I work at the Aussie you know at the at Brunswick Ballroom I mean not well two three blocks around there we've got Howler we've got the Retreat um Stay Gold um you know the there's other there's all these town halls and you know there's the there's there's a whole heap of venues that can be activated as spaces a bit the way that um you know some the big sound conferences, but I don't think we need it though. You know, I think we can do it, but mm. it's it's like it's like South by Southwest every night of the week. You you look at the even though I'm, I sh, um the, we don't have a great gig guide here in Melbourne. Um, if if we did have a great gig guide, you'd actually see <laughs> great gigs every night of the week um, happening in in Melbourne. And you know, like last Thursday last night, I went to um I think I went to about six gigs, and there were probably another twelve I wanted to get to. We were talking about this before, the lack of gig guide. What happened to our gig guides in Melbourne, Mary? Bruce, what happened? <laughs> let's let's throw a grenade in the in the mix. Well, it's it's crazy that it is, isn't it? I have to say, I've I, the big newspapers in Melbourne wonder why they're losing readers all the time, mm. and I think they have great music writers, but they are just not doing their job. I mean, it's uh, – I should be able to jump online and find out everything Absolutely. that's going on and I can't and and I'm old but, you know, younger people. Where do they – yeah. You can't they... rely on, on Instagram from your friends to find out what gigs are well, going Well, look, there on. is social media but like the other night I was, I was – a friend of mine who was here from Sydney said, look, I want to go out tonight and see this band. Where do I go? And I went, you know what? There's probably 30, 40 gigs tonight. Yeah. 
but you look online, but there was no one central, you know, it was crazy. It is insane. What happened to that, Mary? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I actually often wonder why a magazine like Beat still exists online and they don't, their gig guide is terrible. When I worked at Beat and you were, you came from Street Press. Press as yeah. well, um, the gig guide was like, that was like what was the most important part of the event of, of the newspaper, even though we had articles and advertising. I mean, I, because I, I worked at Beat for such a long time, I was always on the case of the whoever was compiling it to make sure it was very comprehensive and accurate because I needed it to navigate my night out every night of the week. So yeah. I I used it myself so much and now I really miss having a gig guide. The EG used to have a fairly good gig guide and now that's gone. It went online for a while but, yeah, we just don't have one. And um, there's, uh, there's a Instagram page called Sticky Carpets but and the, and the person behind that is Ali, who I just I've contacted via the you know via Instagram, but um, she's um, she only has um, four nights. She does Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, and and that's it. But we really need a, a, a comprehensive gig guide, and there's a lot of gigs I miss because I don't know about them. And, you know, internationals, it's really hard it, to find out who's touring. It, it, it is. is insane that mm. international bands play. And I find out the day after that someone played at the forum last night that I would have gone to see. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, this it's, is crazy. It's crazy. Now let's start with um, let's start. Let's finish with some hypotheticals, which I do in in all my interviews because I like seeing people's reactions to some of these questions. I know Bruce, you're not partial to some of these, but I'll start with <laughs> I'll start with Mary. Um, now, Mary, you've been hired to program the St Kilda Music Festival next year, right? You can have anyone you like in that festival. What does it look like? Well. And you've got carte blanche, whatever you want to do. You can have trapeze artists if you want. What do you do well, that's this, going to be different? Well, now, I mean, that is a South Side event, which, um, and I, you know, because events that, like the Prince of Wales when had one love and all that stuff, I would probably go electronic music for the seaside you know, on the beach rather than the rock and roll stuff that I that I would normally see, I would put something like that on. Yeah. Why couldn't you do both? Hmm? I could, well, you'd mix it up, but definitely sort of putting, um, yeah, hip-hop, electronic music. I, I haven't actually got any specific artists to, to throw into the mix, but, yeah. Okay, Bruce, your hypothetical today is <laughs> you've worked with heaps of Melbourne acts, of course. Yep. Is there one that got away in terms of international success? If, the, if there was one band that could have made it or should have made it, you think, internationally that or, or did make it but not to the extent that they that you would have liked, who would that band be? Oh, a whole lot come to mind. But yeah, let's, let's uh, obvious, talk about them. obvious ones, I mean, and they're ones that I worked with, um, the scientists should have succeeded um, and for a whole <laughs> bunch of reasons we won't go into, there was some problems. Uh, I, I really assumed that, uh, that Magic Dirt was – was yes. going to break, you know. I mean, that was an unstoppable tsunami at one stage, um, and for various reasons, that that sort of fell over, and which was a, a big disappointment. Did you sign them to Warner Brothers? Via I did. It? Yeah, mm. yeah, and that was like that was as I was leaving a go go. I was sort of trying to tie up all the loose ends, and Magic Dirt had just signed to Warner's for the rest of the world, and Jeffrey Weiss. Jeffrey Weiss was yeah. doing it, and mm. uh, um, I. I sort of knew that was all going to have a great deal. Um, 
you know, unfortunately it didn't happen. But, you know, the, a guitarist left the band and... Uh, that's right. Um, it, that's that's one that, oh, I, was just, I just knew that that was going to happen and was going to be fantastic and, and it didn't. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, The Scientist is one that... Just, that I, I assumed was uh, was going to yeah they were they were so out of time which is what made them so ahead of their time they had long hair and uh, uh, um, you know they, I mean, it was the look that you know Mudhoney and and Nirvana took on later on it was uh, it was that sort of out of time uh, sure. sound and look. Uh, and they were a completely unique band. I, and, and the Moodist too, to some extent. I think yeah, Dave Graney, uh, just great lyricist, uh, uh, very charismatic on stage, sort of unusual personality, you know, almost something like, uh, you know, I think of bands like Pulp almost as, as sort of the equivalent of... Uh, what about you, Mary? Any acts that you think should have, uh, could have made more of a mark representing Melbourne on an international stage? The ones that... Bruce mentioned, are there so many bands that um, could have, but, uh, you know, it's it's great when, it's great to see bands today making a huge impact overseas, um, you know, that, but, you know, I try, you know, I having tried myself, you know, having an overseas showcase for Australian bands, <laughs> you know, at all, linked into, you know, all the conferences and we did, you know, with London and, and all the, you know, there were so many bands that, that we presented that I thought would would do really well, but I think you know obviously that's one of the things that the internet's been um, f- able to facilitate um, better than record companies were able to is 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 spreading you know music around the world. Um, yeah, some bands now get have a bigger profile overseas than they do here at home. Um, but yeah, great. Now before I get Jane Gazzo in, who's waiting out there, we can see her. Hello, Jane. One last question. I was meant to have Sally Cap in here today, but she's had to go overseas at short notice. One of the questions I had earmarked for her was what else can we do in Melbourne to embellish and to enhance the experience for for punters in the music scene, in the music industry? What else can we do? What else needs to be done? Well, I think we really need to um, have a lot more all-ages gigs and more, you know, gigs, gigs so kids can go and see bands and and have that experience that I had when I was a kid to get, really connect with music, which I think is um, is really missing, lacking in these days is is all ages shows. I know the push still exists and stuff, but I don't know. I never, I, I don't hear about as many all ages shows. No, what happened there? Be. Because I remember when I was doing A and R in the nineties, you know, most of my roster would go out and play skating rinks out at Ringwood and Eltham and. What happened there? What happened to all well, ages a lot, shows? A lot of it became about insurance and stuff like that. You, you right. couldn't have it, – it, it wasn't all ages gigs. It became underage gigs. That's right. Uh, and then you had to have a certain level of security and then gender-based security and it, it became impossible to, liability um, issues, yeah. to put on a gig and not lose a whole lot of money. And uh, certainly by the time – because I had the Tote Hotel, yeah. but uh, – you know, we used to have all ages gigs and then underage gigs, but by the, it got to the stage where we had to cover every bit of alcohol advertising. You know, everything. Stuff, yeah. So um, we had to have a, a number of security guards, and uh, uh, that was very expensive. And you know, you have kids who don't want to pay three dollars for a bottle of water; they'd rather drink out of the tap. Of and course. how do you make money? You you can't. You can't and, yeah. uh, so. 
you just stop doing it. Um, plus, you had to put in forms with liquor licensing and they could take ages to get back to you and say, yes, you can put on this gig, but you couldn't put it on unless you had their permission. So you couldn't advertise for, and sometimes this, the permission would come through, you know, three days before the gig. It was just like, it's too much trouble. Don't yeah. want to deal with it. Other than all ages gigs, what else, Mary? Would you change about Melbourne or try to change in a legislative way? In, or just in general? Well, gig guide. Yeah. Gig guide, <laughs> all ages shows. Gig guide and all ages shows, yep. Um, I don't know, Fitbit, I, mean, I don't know about legislation. That's something that I don't think about much. But, um, you know, m- more music TV mm. be great too, you know. We're not having live bands on our TV sets, you know, as as we used to before, you know, when Jane, who's coming in next, was on recovery. That was such a great show. And, mm. you know, You'd see live bands on Hey Hats as much as that show's been cancelled now. Hey Hats, they had bands. And there was so much music being delivered yeah. through through other, through other the media that was that doesn't seem to exist these days. I do think that there's still not enough recognition of how important... We're talking about social cohesion breaking yeah. down at the moment and... Music is one of the things that creates community. Cre- Who doesn't like music? I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> true. Very true. Um, th- that it, it there's not enough recognition that Melbourne, one of our great things, one of the things that brings us together is there's a lot of music. Uh, let's do all everything we can to have more of it. It's it'll bring in people from all around the world, but it will it, it will bring people within this city. Uh, together, um, the social thing of going to see live the music aspect, is yeah. a wonderful yeah. thing that other cities in this country don't have mm. to the extent that we do. Let's. How can we encourage that more? How, because, do, we, how do we do that, Bruce? I, what would you do? Well, I would. I would. Uh, I, w- I would certainly open up all sorts of. Uh, uh, every council should be going. What is your music? What is your contemporary music policy? Mm. And if they go, what do you mean? You're going, that's not good enough. What What are you doing? Um, I would do it at a, you know, um, and I think things have changed a whole lot. I mm. think th- thanks to Helen and Quincy and the Slam Rally and, uh, uh, you know, there has been a lot of change, but a lot more needs to be done. There needs yeah. to be much quicker grant systems for uh, for bands when things are happening or artists when things are happening. Which I believe are, are happening. Good. Quick grants. Good. Yeah, quick response grants are good. called. Yep. Um, yeah. Sorry. So, so, Bruce, no, I was got, I'd like to see a, a Melbourne music shop at the airport. Yes. Um, but there should be a band playing when you get off a plane. Yes. Like, like when you get to Nashville, yes. you, you'll see three bands by the time you get to the baggage carousel. Correct. Yeah. So that's what we need to have. We have like 70 record shops in Melbourne or something these days. There were, there were only about 12, like, you know, 20 years ago. Um, why can't one be at the, rec- at the airport with a whole lot of other band T-shirts and stuff promoting Melbourne as a music city, um, a, you know, a gig guide access, you know, what's on, you know, everything. Yeah, it would be really good if it's, it's more visible. Like you go, to, you go to Brisbane and Fortitude Valley on the, um, you know, the equivalent of, of, of um, the Burke Street Mall or whatever it is. They've actually got plaques everywhere um, celebrating their music history. We don't have anything visible that tourism, that tourists can see Melbourne, you know, wearing it, our Melbourne Music City on our, on our sleeve, on our I, badge. I, I like, we, yeah. we did the music. 
music oh, bus do. tours. Oh, we didn't mention this. Oh, my they, gosh. I, I, wanted, yeah, I was going to ask you about this. But, you know, on. there should be plaques. Uh, there should be what? plaques all over the place. Mm. This is where... Statues, plaques. Yes, this is where this was recorded. This is where that was recorded. I mean, you, you these... Apartment blocks now, there should be at least be a plaque outside saying once upon a time there was a recording studio here and, hey, guess what? Uh, it wasn't just uh, Little River Band, the birthday party and uh, da-da-da, but Paul McCartney and Madonna also recorded here. Yeah. And, uh, what happened to the bus tours? Oh, we still we – we, we need someone to um, get behind them a bit more. But, yeah, we were organising them through the Art Centre here and last year they were part of Always Live, but this year we're not doing them. So we, Bruce and myself do a Melbourne Music History bus tour and that we started them in 2013 as part of the Leaps and Bounds Festival. So at the time it was just Richmond, Collingwood and Fitzroy. And then when the Music Vault opened, we became like um, an extension of the Music Vault and we do these on Saturdays. We do two tours with, and we have a special guest and we drive around Melbourne and um, talk about Melbourne as the as a music city and the history. So yeah, we're we're keen to do them again if anyone's listening. And where would you go? What what parts of it would Melbourne? partly depend on the, who was on the bus, right? But, uh, you know, it's St Kilda and it's inner city. St Kilda, mm. Fitzroy, Richmond, Collingwood, um, back to the through the city, uh, and there's a million stories on every corner, as as you know. There's and just and boy, some of the People we had on the bus, just uh, some, some people didn't have a filter on their mouth. And I'd be going, well, allegedly, allegedly, we did, allegedly. We did a Geelong edition as well. Oh, Detroit. <laughs> What's one story from the bus that you'll never forget? And we'll finish. <laughs> and we'll and we'll finish off with we'll finish off with that. I don't know, but go I, on. I, 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 allegedly. Well, one that I remember, which is not quite music related, is, is the great one that. Um, Oh, no, Billy Miller talking about going around to Paul Kelly's place to watch the cricket on television and the cricket got rained out and so Paul and Billy pulled out guitars and Billy's uh, uh, Paul's next album had, uh, which was uh, Life is, uh, uh, had a whole bunch of co-writes with Billy Miller on it, including the single, which was the Ari <laughs> single, and Billy Miller made more money out in in his whole music career, Billy Miller from the Ferrets, from the Ferrets yeah. on this one afternoon of trying to watch a cricket match than than any other. Billy's such a great guest. Yeah, and and Billy's got Billy needs a filter on his mouth because he when, tells but, stories. That are but off when the... Billy goes on, he's on the bus. We go past Molly's Molly Meldrum's place, oh, and Molly comes too. out with um, Biggie. But one of my favourite things, one of my favourite moments of actually doing the bus, Bruce was actually overseas, and I got and I had Dave Graney and Claire Moore as my guest. Um, tour guides that that week, and um, and we were driving down Chapel Street, sort of near where um, old Platinum Studios was. The um, and we 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 see Nick Cave, and everyone in the on the bus because it's um, Dave and Claire doing the bus tour. They think that we actually set it up, so Nick Cave <laughs> was spotted on on the bus tour, and I thought that was great. And I just let everyone believe that we had that. You know, That's amazing. I set that up. Well, guys, look, thanks for your time because I've got Jane knocking on the door any second now. It was great having you here this morning. We're going to uh, publish this for, um, on on Vinyl Tap in the next two weeks. And uh, I'll make you aware of it. But thanks for your time this morning. Bruce Milne and Miriam Hilarkos, two Melbourne luminaries. Well, three, including yourself. Well, three. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> You've been listening to Vinyl Tap, Inside the Music Industry, the podcast with Michael Parisi. If you enjoyed that episode, please go to my website for more information about any of my guests, www 
vinyltappodcast.com, all one word of course, and we'll see you on next week's instalment.